Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. I always wonder, listening to that gospel, how many moms in the congregation are thinking, I don't care if you're Jesus, you're going to be grounded when we get home. Like, I just think, Friends, welcome back to church. Anybody feeling deja vu? Like, we were just here. I feel like we just did this. Well, this is how it rolls when you got Christmas on a Saturday. You get this double two for feast action going on. We got Christmas on Saturday, and now we got the Feast of the Holy Family, which is so great, right? We're still savoring the mystery of the incarnation, this incredible, staggering mystery that God took to himself in a plan Not even the angels would have foreseen, not the devils foresaw, no one saw it coming. He took to himself a human nature, uniting his nature to our nature, emptying himself of all the glory that he had, becoming flesh for us, right? He became flesh for us, to fight for us. There's that scene, and there's a part of the gospel, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus is describing the entry of the Son of Man into creation. He says, about himself. He says, can a strong man enter another man's house and plunder his possessions? He says, not unless he first binds the strong man and then first he can take his possessions. I always heard that parable. I always heard that image and I always thought, like, is he talking about the devil as the strong man? He's talking about himself. He, it's his, it's Jesus' own self-understanding of what he's doing in the incarnation, that he's entering into creation to bind the strong man, he's, to, he's come to bind the enemy, our, the tyrant who has taken humanity captive, and he's come to plunder his goods, to take his possessions, you and I, right? This is how Jesus understands his, in, his own incarnation. And he did this for, not for people who were loyal subjects. He did this for people who were in open rebellion against him, us, humanity. You ask the question, why would he do that? Why would God divest himself, enter into this creation to be born in a stable, to be laid upon a manger? Why would he do this? The best answer that I I got for that is I've been rereading a book called The Lord by uh, a theologian named Romano Guardini, who was a big influence on Pope Benedict. And Guardini's answer to the question is this. Love does that sort of thing. That's as good enough as answers as I think any of us will get. Why would he do that? Well, because that's what love does. Love does this incredible thing. So we're celebrating in these days, this Christmas season, the, the, the madness, the surreal madness of God's love. That he did something that we couldn't have even imagined. And today's feast day, the feast of the Holy Family, it's like we're, we're taking this gemstone of this mystery and we're just rotating it. Just to look at it, to consider it, to ponder it from a different facet. And consider this, right? Love chose, when love chose to enter this world, love chose to enter this world through the love of a married couple, through the love of a family, right? Christ, the Logos, he goes forth from the Trinity, from the family of the Trinity, to enter the human family through a particular family, right? It's from family to family. The Trinity is the family. In its essence, it is a family, Right? That's what John Paul II says. The Trinity is a family. So Jesus goes from family into family, right? into the family of Joseph and Mary. And here's the problem. We tend to think of this family almost exclusively in idealistic terms, these sort of abstract, 
like Kincaid painting terms, Christmas card imagery of the Holy Family. This is a problem, that we think of them as so far removed from our experiences. And this is odd, despite what the scriptures reveal about the Holy Family. Because if you were to take, just, and take a deep dive into the scriptures and try to unpack what they're revealing about what the Holy Family went through, it's anything but idealistic. It's brutal, actually. It's very difficult. I mean, from the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, that was a tough journey. If you were here at the 4 o'clock Christmas Eve Mass, you heard me preaching about that. It was about 100 miles. Anybody here walk 100 miles before? Anybody do it pregnant? Like, I, I don't think so, right? Like, that's a brutal reality. That's a brutal journey. They had to cross through mountain ranges, across the, the Cana Valley. They had to do a crossing of the Jordan River. I mean, that is not an idealistic thing. There was no deodorant in the ancient world. Like, they smelled like Joseph's armpits. He was a worker man. Like, come on, right? This is, this is reality. It's gritty and it's real. And it all came at the worst timing, right? Caesar's census. Here's Mary basically ready to pop. And Joseph's like, we got to go on a walk, Mary. She's like, how far? About 100 miles, right? Like, it couldn't have come at a worse time. And you have to imagine Joseph as a good father, excited, ready to be, you know, to accept Jesus, to be the foster father of Jesus, the virginal father of Jesus, that he had everything ready. In their home at Nazareth, they had everything prepared. Imagine Joseph, he made the crib. And it was beautiful, no doubt. He was a craftsman. He knew how to make things. And I'm sure Mary, with the other women and her family, I'm sure she had already put, into, put together different sort of I mean, I don't think they had onesies in the ancient world, but she had some type of outfit action going on, right? She had sewn blankets or something. And they were all probably laid out. Like, nesting was a thing that was in the ancient world just as much as it is in our world. I'm sure they were ready for all of these things. And yet, the census comes, they have to go to Bethlehem, and then from Bethlehem, they don't get to go back home. They have to go to Egypt from there. And imagine that. You've got a newborn, and now you have to go not back to your hometown 100 miles. You have to now flee to Egypt, to a place that you don't speak the language, you don't have any connections, you don't have any family there. Like, how did they manage that? It was probably very, very difficult. A lot of sleepless nights. And I've often thought about them returning back home to Nazareth after those two plus years in Egypt and there was the crib that Jesus was supposed to sleep in that he never got to use. What was that like for their hearts to see that? Anyway, not to mention the gospel we just heard today, right? Definitely not an idealistic situation. In fact, like it's, I, f I find it ironic or paradoxical maybe that on the Feast of the Holy Family we're presented a situation that's probably the, one of the worst moments of their life. They lost God. Parents, like, whatever you've done to your kids, you've never lost God, okay? Like, you'd be like, I got that going for me, okay? Like, imagine the panic. Imagine the panic. Like, that's a moment of terror. We just kind of glossed through this gospel, right? Imagine the terror. They, they lost him for two days before they come back to Jerusalem. This is a terrible moment for them. Not a shining example of the glory of the Holy Family. This is a brutal moment. And yet, despite what the scriptures reveal about this family, we persist in this imagery. We hold this idealistic imagery that 
it, it makes them untouchable in our imaginations. We need our imaginations to be transformed here. We need to see these hidden years of Jesus differently in more human reality. The idealistic imagery is problematic because if you listen to the prayers of the church that we hear today, the church is inviting us, it's inviting you as, as members of families, it's inviting you to imitate the Holy Family, to emulate the Holy Family, follow the example of the Holy Family. And the thing is, you can only imitate what you've experienced and for most of us, because we have this idealistic image, we just kind of write them off and say, well, they're up here and we're down here, and they're just some sort of ideal that we're just striving to. I don't know how I'm supposed to imitate that or emulate that. That's a problem. That's a problem. I want to share my heart a little bit with you this evening when it comes to the Holy Family. I think if I ever got to choose like a, a religious name, if I was ever part of like a religious congregation like Therese of the Child Jesus or St. John of the Cross, right? I would love to choose uh, Patrick of the Holy Family. I have a huge devotion to the Holy Family. When I do my holy hours in the morning, I spend most of my time in my imaginative prayer with them in their home at Nazareth. I could draw like a, lay, a, a, floor, pan, a floor pan of their house. I could tell you where the flowers kept in the kitchen. I could tell you what it smells like in the early spring. I could tell you how many steps there are that lead up to the front door. I spent a lot of time in their house, in my imagination, in my heart. And in that place, in that home, there is such intimacy. And the most beautiful conversations, because unlike all of our families that struggle under the cloud of sin, what happened in that home is nothing but perfect love. Like, imagine that, that every reaction was one of perfect love. Every response was one of perfect love. It's an amazing thing. And the thing is, this isn't just because I'm a priest. This isn't just like, you know, well, good for me and, you know, I don't know, you got to figure it out on your own. You get to go live somewhere else. The truth is this, that because of your baptism, because of my baptism, you and I, we were given a new identity. At our baptism, when those waters touched our head and that name, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is declared over us, our deepest identity is transformed. We take on the identity of Jesus in a mystical way. When God the Father beholds us, he sees his Son. So not only do we receive a new identity, but we receive new relationships, right? Identity flows from relationships. I know who I am when I know whose I am. So in baptism, we receive the identity of Jesus, which means we not only have access to the Trinity, but we also have access to Jesus' relationships. We have access to his relationship with Joseph, his relationship with Mary. We're given keys, if you will, to their home. We're given the garage code, if you will, to their house. Like our stuff, your stuff, your clothes, your favorite cereal, it's in the house at Nazareth. It's there. Look, Christ was formed within the warmth and in the love of the Holy Family's life. And if we are Christians, we're followers of Christ, we have to also be formed where he was formed. You cannot be a disciple without Mary and Joseph. That is why, friends, in every Catholic church, there is an image of Mary and Joseph 
Where? Right on each side of where Jesus becomes present. It's not, be, it's not because architects were like, what should we put up there? How about Joseph? That's nice. There is something mystical about this. It's saying Christ is formed within the embrace of Mary and Joseph. If Christ is going to be formed in us as disciples, we need Mary and Joseph. We need the Holy Family. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. And it might sound strange. It might stretch some of you outside of your comfort zones. But in your imagination, next time you have a good chunk of time for prayer, and I do mean a good chunk of time from silence and those sorts of things, I want you to imaginatively approach their house. And their house can look however it needs to look in your imagination. I want you to imagine that you're walking up to their house and you sit on their front porch and they will come to you. Jesus will come to you and they'll say to you, man, it's so good to see you. We've been waiting for you. It's been a while. We were wondering when you'd, when you'd show up. And then they'll ask you, how are you? And then you'll say, oh, I'm fine. Because that's what we always do. And they'll say, no, 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 no. This is us. How are you? And then you begin to share. They say, fill us in. Don't leave anything out. Friends, Christ came not simply to die for our sins, not simply to defeat the enemy. He did all of those things. He came to make us new, to restore us, as John Paul II says, to restore us to the purity of our origins. He came that our hearts might be healed, that we might receive love in those places in our hearts and our stories where we didn't receive love. He came, Jesus came, to give us the relationships that he has with the Trinity and also with his earthly family. There is no discipleship. There is no Christianity without Mary and Joseph. And maybe you're thinking, man, I've, I don't think I've ever talked to Joseph. Well, it's, it's time you start. And he won't be mad that it's taken you this long. We cannot be disciples of Jesus without being formed with those who formed him. There's no such thing as discipleship apart from the Holy Family. So friends, let us open our hearts to this beautiful gift of Nazareth. And let us commit to going there to receive healing and everything our hearts are seeking. Amen.